0: Take your Bibles and turn to Ezra 5, Ezra 5, page 377, if you're using the uh, Bibles that we provide here. You know, I saw a lot of uh, uh, first day of school pictures on social media this week, one of those landmark moments. Some of you may remember being new at a school. First, you, your family moved, and so you got to walk into that new classroom. There's some anxiety. You don't know anybody, and everything is new to you. Some of you remember first day at the job. Everybody else knows what's going on, and you don't know what's going on. New sometimes means fear, new brings anxiety. Very often. But I bet you mustered up the courage at that school or that job and kept going because school was that important. You have to continue. Work is that important. You have to continue. And so you muster up the courage and, in spite of your fears, you persist with what is new. As we return to our study of Ezra, And the vitally connected book of Haggai that we just completed, we find the people of Israel at a time where they have moved, first of all, to a new location. From exile in Babylon back to Israel, we find them at a time of making new spiritual commitments. Everything was different. They came to a series of turning points in their lives spiritually in this book of Ezra. Spiritual turning points are when we make significant decisions in a direction that God wants us to go. Spiritual turning points are when we make significant decisions in the direction God wants. Wants us to go. And I don't know if in the recent months uh, God's been doing something in your life that is essentially a spiritual turning point. You've decided before Him that uh, you are going to recommit yourself to some area of spiritual growth. Maybe you're going to be in the Word regularly. Maybe you've committed yourself to address some area of weakness or sin in your life, your personal holiness. Maybe the spiritual turning point is something to do with the body of Christ here and you're going to connect yourself. You're going to uh, let yourself be accountable and a little more open and transparent. Maybe your spiritual turning point has to do with some key relationships in your life that need addressing or I don't know what it might be. God works in us individually. But I can be sure of this that if you have made a significant decision in the direction God wants you to go, that commitment will be tested. That in fact, no no matter how long you have already been going down that new path, there will be anxieties, there will be fears, there will be obstacles, there will be opposition. Something will test that commitment. And we want to look at that in our passage today as... uh, Another spiritual turning point takes place in the life of Israel, and it is tested. So let's review a little bit where we're uh, at in terms of the uh, nation of Israel. We'll do this by way of a, uh, a map. So, this little area is what we know as the land of Israel. It's where most of the Bible takes place. It's the promised land that Israel got as Joshua led them there. 1400 BC, and they were basically there in that promised land for some 800 years, but there had been a spiritual decline, and so through those years, God had warned them, if you don't change, if you keep going after idols, I will have you taken away to another land, and that's exactly what happened, so around 600 BC, there was a series of uh, deportations that took place. Over a 20-year span of time, three of them and tens of thousands of the Israelites were taken off into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, who also destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and took the treasures of the temple off to Babylon. And there they were for the next decades. And while there, we discovered uh, in, in the book of Ezra earlier on that uh, they, began, they weren't really in prison. They could live their lives. They began to prosper. But then the Persians took over the Babylonians and a new king, Cyrus, was in charge. And Cyrus was moved by God to tell the Jews, I want you to go back and anybody who wants to go back to Israel can go. And so in the first couple chapters of Ezra, we see that some 50 Thousand Jews responded to that invitation left what was probably a rather prosperous life in Babylon and went back to Jerusalem with the express purpose of rebuilding the temple of God and restoring what God had in mind for worshiping him though the temple had been destroyed right and so they go back to rebuild the temple and they begin to do just that 535 they are rebuilding the temple They just lay the foundations, and they stop. They stop because of fear of the opposition, the local Samaritans. They they stop, it seems, because of discouragement. Some of the older people who had seen the previous Grand Temple of Solomon said, seriously, we came here to build this? And then as they stopped, they went to their Homes and had to rebuild their homes. And they got so distracted and involved in their home remodeling projects that this delay lasted some 15 years. And so God sent them two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And in in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we've looked at that previously. Chapter 5, verse 1, it tells us Haggai and Zechariah were sent to them. And so we went to the book of Haggai to study exactly what Haggai told them. But the good news is what we find in verse 2. Then Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel and Joshua son of Josedach set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So as Haggai came and, and first of all rebuked them, confronted them, then encouraged them and said, God can be with you, they restarted. They made a new spiritual commitment. So there had been one in 535. They had to make another one in 520. And so that's where we find them. The rebuilding has commenced. The question is, will it last? Because every spiritual commitment we make will be tested. So we find them there in verse 3. They're doing it. They're, they're rebuilding again. They got back on track. Verse 3, at that time, Tat and I, Governor of Trans-Euphrates and shethar Bazanai and their associates went to them and asked to the Jews, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked, what are the names of the men constructing this building? So it's, it's contesting what they're doing. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius, that's the king of Persia, and his written reply be received. Would they stop this time? They did not. Because God was watching over them as they persisted in the commitment they had made. Darius is the uh, king of Persia, which is a very vast kingdom, uh, Tatanai is the governor he's assigned, evidently, over this area. Now, they call it trans-Euphrates. That's probably the Persian term, but it was, it's really Israel or Judea that they are, he's in charge of. And we can assume that Tatanai uh, had not been there very long because he didn't know anything about this rebuilding project until he was told, hey, do you see what they're doing? They're rebuilding again, and we can almost guess how he heard about it. Go back to chapter 4, verse 4, 4, verses 4 and 5. This is 15 years earlier when they began to rebuild. Then the peoples around them, Samaritans, set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans. During the entire reign of Cyrus, current at that time, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Fast forward 15 years and those in between. And so this uh, protest and objections and opposition had been going on throughout this 15-year period of time. The Jews knew that their project was hated by the locals. That's one of the reasons they had stopped. That's one of the reasons God had to send them Haggai to... Say, be strong, and don't fear, and God is with you. The power of fear is compounded by time. It's the long-term fears that really get to us. We can all deal with the short stuff. You forget your lunch, and you panic, or you lose your wallet, or you see red lights in the rearview mirror, and yeah, your heart goes like that, but you'll deal with it, right? It'll be passed. It's the long-term stuff that just drags us down and hangs like a cloud. Fear is compounded by, by time and, and, and nothing is, is, is so... Wearing on us emotionally and spiritually as relational things. The Samaritans were right there. They were still the neighbors. And to know they were against you, they're against you, they're against you. Relationships wear on us. They're long-term trials many times. And so the people had to deal with ongoing disapproval. And everybody likes to be liked. They lived with this Disapproval for, disapproval for doing the right thing. So it wasn't even like, oh, what, what's the right thing? It's, they're doing the right thing. The good news is this, though. Real spiritual growth happens best, it seems, when the tension between God's approval and man's approval is clearly in focus. And you have to decide which way you will go. What means more to me, God's approval or man's approval? Joshua twenty four fifteen. Joshua has helped lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And it would seem to be a real positive time, but he knew what was ahead of them, all the temptations of the idolatry. And he said to them, Choose you this day who you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What empowers that kind of decisive courage to persist in spiritual commitments as they, not if, but as they will be tested? Verse 5 says what that empowered them was the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews. And they were not stopped until they could send this report. In other words, it wasn't like a military came and and, and forced them to stop. So they said, you go ahead and check it out. But we're not stopping just because you want us to. Because the eye of our God is watching over us. this This is exciting. They get it you can't make everybody happy. They would live with the disapproval of the neighbors. They would live with the, uh, well, the tentative disapproval of the Persian officials because they didn't know what the king would say. But they could live with that because they knew God sees. And God is going to watch over, not just see, but it implies God will take care of the fallout. You find that phrase, the eye of God, or the eyes of God, numerous times in Scripture. Uh, we know theologically God is spirit, not flesh. But he is often spoken of with eyes and ears uh, because we are made in his image. And so we are, uh, we, we, we are personal beings. He is a personal being and, it's, and his omniscience, and he, indeed, sees. He's omniscient. He knows all. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere. So nothing escapes his notice. And that's a very good thing for a couple of reasons. One is accountability. Because he sees all, we are accountable, Job said, for his eyes are on the ways of a man and he sees all his steps. Solomon says almost the identical thing for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. It should be real assuring to us that nobody is getting by with anything. So many times that, 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 that unfairness, sense of injustice swells up inside of us and we forget that God sees everyone and what they're doing and even what they're thinking. Nothing gets by. But it's not just for accountability, because that applies both to believer and unbeliever and believer, but his all watching eye, as in our passage, is for our support. Second Chronicles sixteen nine, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Why? To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Because I'm looking for someone who is pursuing blameless, blamelessness before me that's the one I'm going to support. Or in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3.12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. What's really clear is if we want the assurances of God's support is to pursue blamelessness, to pursue righteousness. Those new spiritual decisions in the direction God wants will be worth it. And this provides courage for us. And it did for the Samaritans, and so they just kept on building. They knew that God had directed them to do this. I hope that you have experienced God's presence in speaking to you through his word. When you know this is what God wants you to do. Maybe it's something you have been reading in the word of God, and you come to this conviction Maybe it's something you hear, taught. Maybe it's something in discussion with other godly people. But the thought comes to you, I think God wants me to blank. And for you, it becomes something very specific. Now, will we always be spot on? We don't know. It needs, you know, you talk with other people. But you know what I mean, that, that, God speaks to our heart through a biblical principle. This isn't just my idea. And says, I, th- I think God wants me to... Hmm. Last week, if you were here, Pastor Nate finished up his message about praising God by suggesting an application that we would, for 30 days, morning and evening, think of something to praise God about. I was back there. I heard that. I thought, that's a good application, Nate. Good job. But I didn't make any plan. I think a Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening, Priscilla said, we should do that. We should have a conversation in the morning and the evening about what we praise God for. I said, no, honey, that's just an idea. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) I said, okay. Okay. And so we've been doing that almost every morning and evening, one of us reminding the other, what do we praise God for? It's remarkable how that brings a positive turn to whatever negativity was going on in our life. It's amazing how that actually draws us together to have those conversations. Sometimes, We make spiritual commitments and we are rewarded with the knowledge that God is involved watching over my life in specific ways. Sometimes those commitments will cost us the approval of somebody close to us. Sometimes there's a price tag to pleasing God and it's not comfortable, it's awkward when someone who is close to us who we care about doesn't agree but again that's where we are facing a necessary human disapproval which actually enables us to experience the exciting personal approval of God and what a a rewarding experience it is to know that this is what God wants me to do. He is faithful. So who kept this project going in verse 5? The eye of their God was watching over who? The elders of the Jews. That is different than verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, it was Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets who exhorted the people, and Zerubbabel, the project leader, governor of the Jews, and and the high priest, they were named the leaders. But in verse 5, I'm encouraged that it says the elders. This was now broader. The spiritual commitment of these key leaders had become contagious. We know that sin and weaknesses are contagious, we know that negativity and critical spirits and, and all the kind, of... Oh, but yeah, it spreads. We know that. Do you realize that spiritual encouragement is contagious? It's one of the main reasons we gather together. And so this had spread to the elders. Now there was a whole team of leaders on the same page believing that God was watching over them. I am very grateful for the team of elders our church board, that together shares the vision as different as we are from one another, together shares the vision of what God has called us to do at Open Door. To accomplish our our stated, we believe, biblical purpose of that which we call RBI. That our purpose is to glorify God, the big the big picture is to glorify God. How? By reaching people with the gospel, our reaching, communicating the message of the cross to people who need it for eternal salvation, reaching people with the gospel, B, building them in their faith. That's what we're trying to do most of the time on a Sunday morning in our ministries. Building them up in their faith, and then I involving them in God's plan. That's where each individual begins to realize that I am a part of, I'm not going to church, I am the church. And then we get involved in how God has gifted us to do what? To reach people of the gospel and build them and involve them. I'm so grateful we have a, a, a team of leaders. Who believe that God is watching over us in this process? One of, one of, for me, one of the significant ways in which we have seen God watch over the ministry in these last three to four years is to see really the miracle of the building that we're this morning really fully occupying and to see God. Uh, draws through the the challenges of taking ideas into into uh, plans and decision after decision and obstacles and insurmountable dollar amounts but to look back and say we see that God has been watching over us nothing is so rewarding as that and i trust that you will be building up a a log in your family in your life as you look at these turning points where you have made spiritual significant spiritual decisions in the direction God wants you to go and begin to see oh God was watching over me because I was pursuing I was persistent and I didn't let fear or discouragement or distractions keep me from that which God was directing me to do they were not going to be stopped so They keep building, and Tatanai sends a letter to his boss, King Darius. This is a copy, verse 6, of the letter that Tatanai, the governor, sends. Verse 7, the report they sent him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. Verse 8, the king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God, The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their uh, direction. I love reading that. You know, if there had been no opposition, no investigation, we'd have never known just how thoroughly God's courage had penetrated the hearts of these people. They're building it with diligence and rapid progress. They had turned this spiritual corner, and this time they didn't stop. This time they did not think about delay or, well, we really shouldn't do that and get wrapped up in their own pride. This time they persisted. It's like the, 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 the word of God. Here's what happened. The word of God through Haggai about don't stop. Realize the problem spiritually when you did Stop keep going, be encouraged. It had penetrated their hearts. It's a glorious thing when the people of God are moved by the word of God and recalibrate something in their life to live out the priorities of God. That's where it matters when we as his people look at his word And now we embrace his priorities. We live in a busy world. There are generally plenteous opportunities to work and work more. There are opportunities for your children to do activities and more and more activities. There are opportunities to be entertained in more and more and extremely more ways. And the result of that is that our, our days are filled with plenty of things, but perhaps not God's priorities. If you want to know what your priorities are, there's a little technological thing you can do. If you have your location services on and you go to Google Maps, they have a timeline that will take you to yesterday or any day and tell you where you were and for how long you were there to the minute. That's how you know your priorities. Because that's where you were and that's what you did. Many of them are essential good things but where were you and what you were you doing reveals your priorities. The exciting thing is as we embrace God's word and begin to embrace his priorities, our calendar, our timeline will begin to reveal it. Because now we will be worshiping. Now we will find places for serving God with our spiritual gifts. Now we will be Caring about people. So we'll know we were with a person there to encourage them. We're with a person there to encourage them. And what we actually do will reveal the transformed priorities God has placed in our heart. So the contrast in verse 8 between the book of Haggai where he was saying, Seriously, you are so self-focused. And what we see now that they are diligently accomplishing what God asked them to do—it's beautiful. It's a turning point. The opposition, the threat of the project stopped, continues. Verse nine. In this letter, Tat and I continues. We questioned the elders and asked them, "Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure?" We also asked them their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. We're taking names. That's a threat. This is the answer. This is Tatani asking, telling Darius, the king, the conversation he had with the Jews. This is the answer they gave us when we said, you know, who authorized you and here's the first thing. Whatever. Whatever Tat and I had discussed in this meeting with the elders of the Jews, this is what stood out with him, for him. This is the answer they gave us, verse 11: "We are the servants of the God of heaven and Earth. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. It's remarkable what they mentioned first. We serve the God of heaven and earth. This wasn't disrespecting their governmental authority, but it was just saying that we have a higher authority. We serve the God of heaven and earth, the creator God. And what we're doing is we're rebuilding the temple that had been built by a great king. Now, we know that to be King Solomon. Uh, That name wouldn't have been meaningful to Tatanai. He didn't know the history of centuries before the spiritual heritage of King David and King Solomon, and the books of Psalms and Proverbs that we value, and the and the account of all of this in First and Second Kings—that that was that was meaningless, and and he was ignorant of those things. But the Jews know their heritage, and so often it's important that we know our heritage, that we we know what brought us from where we were to where we are. We know the people who have fed into our lives and that creates a rich soil for future persistence. Notice they also didn't sugarcoat the sin of their own people. Our fathers angered the God of heaven. When we are persisting in spiritual obedience in the direction God wants us to go, it's amazing the spiritual clarity we get about what's gone on in the past and we no longer live in self-defense and denial. They knew that their fathers and forefathers had uh, violated God's word on a, for a long-term basis and that's why they were in that situation. Every one of us as believers can remember, I'm sure, times of spiritual setbacks no one has a spiritual graft like that our grafts are like this we know it we remember certain decisions we remember certain stubbornnesses and it's a path we've been on it could be that it's been 15 years like these guys 15 years since we've been properly aligned with God's word but don't despair That's the message. There's a way back. Grace grace is not just about saving us from our sin to go from hell to heaven. Grace is the way God handles us. Grace is the way he sees us and accepts us and picks us up over and over again. It's never hopeless, but a clear indication that this was a sincere restart is the clarity they have about their past. Tetanai writes it all down in a letter to his boss. Now, what he brings up next in verse 13 that the Jews told him, I assume that uh, Tet and I is recording what the Jews said in kind of the order that they told him. They first said, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. That's what stood out to him. That was the most important thing they said. The, the next thing is the defense legally that they actually did have authorization from Cyrus to do this. Now, I, you'd think that that's what we would, a person would bring up first. And so often as Christians, that's the first thing we do is we say, oh, but we have the right to do this or that. That's not really the main thing. The main thing is we have the authority from God and we're responding to his authority and then we'll worry about the legal stuff later. But anyhow, verse 13. Now they bring up the legal defense. However, in the first year of Cyrus king of Babylon, king Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the god of silver, the gold and silver articles of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor, and he told him, take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it's been under construction, but it is not yet finished. So they make their defense that Cyrus, the, one of the predecessors of Darius, in fact, he was the king who had conquered the Babylonians. He was that first king, had authorized this, the rebuilding project, as well as, and this is significant, the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar took out of God's temple and took to Babylon. Cyrus said, take it back when you rebuild the temple. Sheshbazar is a little bit confusing name or character in Ezra. Uh, Some think Sheshbazar is the same person as Zerubbabel. Uh, The reason you'd think that is because both of them are called governor. Both of them are credited with laying the foundation of the temple. But I wonder if that's the case because the term governor or prince, is a very generic term for leader. It's like saying a ruler or official. And the name Sheshbazar is a Persian or Babylonian kind of name, and the name Zerubbabel is a Hebrew uh, name. I think these are two different people, and that there had been a Persian official designated by Cyrus to oversee what's going to go on there that I'm sending the Jews to do, but then there's also Zerubbabel, one of the Jews, who's going to actually lead the project. That's my understanding of it. But regardless, the point is that Cyrus had authorized this. The law of the Medes and the Persians, if you've ever heard that term, was that a later law cannot negate a previous law. And so all they would need to prove is that Cyrus really did do this. So as Tatanai has recorded this whole conversation, we have the script of his letter that he sent to Darius. Now uh, Tatanai get, gets to the actual request of his letter to the king in verse seventeen. Now if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in the matter. Because, because, I mean, that's really what's motivating Cat and I. He didn't want to just shut it down because the Samaritans told him so. He didn't want to find out later on he was in trouble because actually King Cyrus had authorized this project. Next week we'll pick up the story there. But what are we learning from this last section? We learn that courage to keep our spiritual commitment comes when we are focusing on God's authority. We are servants of God. God has appointed us to do this. And so if there is a conflict between human authority, civil, legal, governmental authority, and the true command and principle of God, we do what God says. In the New Testament, after the launch of the church, Peter, in his leadership position, was on the hot seat repeatedly, thrown in jail a couple of times in Acts chapter 5. He was put in jail for teaching God's word, and then the angel of God let him out, and he's out there teaching, and the officials come to confront him. And they say to him, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. What a compliment. Wouldn't it be great if they said, Open doors. Filling Osaka County with the gospel. That's what Peter was doing. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. I realize there's a conflict, guys, but I'm sorry. This thing we have of, of, of his word and this thing we have of the authority of God, it makes a difference. And so we will risk jail to obey and communicate the gospel. I've never felt much persecution. I feel like it's it's a huge blessing to be able to freely teach the Word of God in the United States of America. We can broadcast this service live. We can write it down. We can publish it. Will we always have that freedom? I don't know. Will our children? Will our grandchildren? The direction would suggest there's going to be more and more limits. I don't say that, please understand, don't say that to induce fear. That is to induce courage and confidence. Because the whole scripture is filled with opposition to the word of God. And who wins? God's word always wins. Now, is there suffering and persecution? Yes, in this world you will have tribulation. But do not fear, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. And so we need to have that confidence. So let's not be distressed by what we see. Shake our heads. I shake my head when I see Christian-owned companies like Chick-fil-A or Hobby Lobby facing protests because they add stores in their success or because they apply biblical principles to their benefit policies or they make contributions to Christian ministries as a private company. It almost seems like churches have more freedoms than Christian businesses do sometimes today. But we know that being a believer in Christ, not just religious, being a believer in Christ, adhering to and submitting to the word of God will subject us to more and more ridicule. And because it's in the public forum, media, etc., it'll happen more privately. But that's where you and I have the opportunity to shine. Because people can try to decide. Now, they always mock people who believe the Bible, but I know Joe. I don't feel like making fun of him at all. And that's where we glorify God by our commitments. So if you have been making some turning point changes, decisions, will you follow through as it gets tough? Maybe attending regularly is a new spiritual turning point for you. Maybe investing in connecting to the people of God in an adult Bible fellowship or your children and kids uh, build on a Sunday, or the youth programs that are starting on Wednesday night, maybe a Bible study, maybe that's a new spiritual turning point for you. Because you know you'll be more connected, a little more transparent, and a little more involved. Those aren't just meaningless changes of doing something, spiritual activity. Those are generally birthed in something God prompts because you want to grow spiritually, because you want to be accountable spiritually, because you want to impact the lives of others spiritually. Those are are significant decisions. Or maybe God is working in some personal way that you've decided to address issues in your marriage that have hung there forever. Forever. You're going to be more honest. You're going to be more transparent. You're going to make sacrifices that you haven't made. Something that God is prompting in your heart. That's fantastic. Just know it will be tested. But as it is tested, let's review three assurances we have of how we have courage in times of testing of new spiritual commitments. Focusing, number one, focusing on God's care. That's his eye, remember? Focusing on God's care motivates us to keep commitments, even if someone disapproves. So, is it possible there is someone whose disapproval means too much to you? Because so often there are certain people in our lives that we, we unthinkingly begin to shape our lives around their approval. Because of a family connection, A personality or power or popularity or work situation, and we just find ourselves obsessed with their approval. That is an opportunity to see how we will persist in seeking God's approval in spite of someone else's disapproval. Number two, focusing on God's Word will transform our priorities. Has this really become the basis of our conviction and our priorities? Is there some clear biblical priority that I'm ignoring? Is there something that our calendars will reveal? That this is out of a line. And so there's some hard decisions that we may need to make. Number three. Focusing on God's authority gives us courage if, when, we conflict with human authority, because it will happen. The first issue, though, is not what a government thinks. The first issue is, have I aligned myself? Am I resisting God's authority on some issues? Is there some place where I am ignoring, rationalizing something I know God said? Let's not worry about the government until... We have personally decided that we will submit to God's authority. And then if there is a conflict, if I'm a, am I afraid of some human opinion that contradicts my commitment to God's authority? And what we find with confidence is that we will be fine when we pursue and persist in our spiritual commitments because God is going to watch over us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to recommit ourselves to a life of simple and single focus on you, your word, your will, your direction in our life. I pray, Lord, for each person among us who is hearing your spirit, maybe in some specific ways, as we have heard Uh, biblical principles of your direction. Guide us to make hard decisions or to keep hard commitments as we are tested. We just commit to you, Lord, this uh, fall season, all those who are re-entering school, perhaps, people who are in new places or positions as... uh, as the fall comes, as schedules are determined and changed and established. Lord, that we would have a clearer view of your will in our life. We recommit ourselves to persist in the direction you are taking us. In Jesus' name, amen.